Hi, writers. Welcome to a new episode on the craft of writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer. Today, let's talk about how to create fascinating, compelling characters for our stories. One quick and terrific technique. In Stephen Chbosky's novel, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, the 15-year-old narrator Charlie says, It's strange because sometimes I read a book and I think I am the people in the book. Isn't that a terrific observation? It happens to me and I'll bet it happens to you too. We sort of become a character in the book. How does that happen? What in the writing makes us readers get so close to a character? Are there techniques we writers can use? I'd like to talk about one. The great science fiction writer Orson Scott Card writes about how a character's quick mannerism can lead readers to make big judgments. This is Orson Scott Card. If you're at a party and you see the same guy spill a drink talk too loudly, and make inappropriate or rude remarks, those actions will lead you to make a judgment of him. If you see a man and a woman meet for the first time and then a few moments later see him stroking her back or see her with her hand resting on his chest as they engage in intense close-up conversation, you reach conclusions about them. People become, in our minds, what we see them to do. This is the strongest, most irresistible form of characterization. That's Orson Scott Card in his book, Characters and Viewpoint. When we we see a character do something, and often it's a small thing, we readers instantly form a judgment about that character in the story. A minor thing, a mannerism or a gesture or an item of clothing or a possession or a turn of phrase, these things can infer much about the character and can give readers a huge and memorable impression. It's a terrific technique. Often a character can be brought to vivid life with one small thing. These Character touches can be added with a sentence or two or three, and they're memorable. Readers remember these odd little things because we all have them. A small character detail, an odd little quirk, something small but colorful, can make a character intensely human because they remind readers of themselves, if not in the specific detail, but because we all have them. Here's an example. Uh, from V.S. Naipaul's My Aunt Goldteeth. I never knew her real name, and it's quite likely that she did have one, though I never heard her called anything but gold teeth. She did indeed have gold teeth. She had 16 of them. She had married early, and she had married well, and shortly after her marriage, she exchanged her perfectly sound teeth for gold ones to announce to the world that her husband was a man of substance. Don't those few sentences by V.S. Naipaul say a lot about gold teeth? Here's another example. Vincent O. Sullivan in the story Palms and Minarets. I am the only person I know whose father was a dandy, 
a man who failed at almost everything except keeping his shoes polished to perfection. That one thing says a lot about the father. And here's Glenda Adams in her novel Long Leg. But when mother twirled, she kept her right foot in one spot, using it as a pivot, and used the left foot as if she were on a scooter, pushing herself round and round, her arms held out at shoulder level, and she threw back her head and laughed. Only after many, many revolutions did she flop onto the lounge, almost flying into it, so that there was a moment when her whole body was completely in the air, after her feet had left the floor, as she flung herself at the brown couch, and before her body touched the cushions. Uh, this wonderful writing tells the reader, in this one motion by the mother, that the mother needs a moment, only a few seconds, of undiluted pleasure, of, of release. She can be playful and doesn't care who's watching her. We learn all this in a couple of sentences, in one action. Here are some others, uh, some wonderful one or two sentence descriptions that bring characters alive in a... Uh, precise and economic and fun way. In Charles Dickens's novel, David Copperfield is the unforgettable character Uriah Heep. One of the ways he's uh, unforgettable is that he constantly rubs his hands together. Whenever the reader sees Uriah Heep, he's, he's rubbing his hands greedily together. And his dialogue, the worst uh, the use of the word humble, which Dickens spells umble. I am well aware that I am the humblest person going, said Uriah Heep. Let the other be where he may. My mother is likewise a very humble person. We live in a humble abode, Master Copperfield, but have much to be thankful for. My father's former calling was humble. He was a sexton. Dickens is letting the reader know with that constant rubbing of his hands and the peculiar insistence on letting people know he's humble that Uriah Heep is a schemer and isn't to be trusted. And what a fantastic character Uriah Heep turns out to be. The minute he appears on a page, the, the reader rivets on him. Here's another example. Anne Shirley in Anne of Green Gables, she takes immediate and loud offense when anyone makes fun of her red hair. And the reader learns in a sentence or two of dialogue that Anne is, is prickly and has fragile self-esteem. The great uh, fictional detective Nero Wolfe raises orchids. And that indicates to the reader that he, he can't be bothered with the muck of society out on the street. Uh, Captain Nemo, in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, lives aboard his Nautilus submarine and he plays the organ. He's one of my favorites, Dr. Urbino, in A Hundred Years of Solitude, eats asparagus every day so he can smell it in his urine. It lets us know that he's an Epicurean and odd. Remember Lisbeth Salander in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? She has a, a short and tough, amateurish-looking haircut. 
And the author describes her hair as, quote, short as a fuse. Isn't that a fantastic simile? And doesn't it wonderfully drop on the reader a bucket load about Elizabeth's attitude or her character? And we can infer from that something of her history just from a short description of her hair. Ian Fleming's James Bond drinks his martinis shaken, not stirred. Uh, Does the author need to tell us anything more about Bond's erudition and taste? No, we learn all about it in that one request for a cocktail made a certain way. In uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox by Roald Dahl, Mr. Fox wears tweed suits. And we readers know that a character who only wears tweed suits has a certain personality. How do we know it? We just do. And Roald Dahl doesn't have to tell us much more about Mr. Fox. Here's Charles Dickens again, the young pickpocket Jack Dawkins, known as the Artful Dodger. Uh, The Artful Dodger is a boy who's short even for a boy, but he insists on dressing like a man. Quote, His hat was stuck on the top of his head so lightly that it threatened to fall off every moment, and would have done so very often if the wearer had not had a knack of every now and then giving his head a sudden twitch which brought it back to its old place again. He wore a man's coat which reached nearly to his heels. That's Charles Dickens, of course. The Artful Dodger is a master pickpocket, but the reader feels sorry for him with just his clothing description, as as the Dodger wants to be something he can't be and never will be. Ignatius J. Riley in A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. Ignatius wears, uh, he dresses in a hunting cap, a flannel shirt, baggy pants, and a scarf, even in sweltering New Orleans. What does this tell us about Ignatius in one or two short sentences? Uh, Ignatius isn't normal, and mentally he walks on a tightrope. Does that phrase make sense? Mentally he walks on a tightrope? I don't, I don't think so, but I, I hope you'll take my meaning. In J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series, the potions teacher at Hogwarts, Severus Snape, tells his students, I don't expect you will really understand. The reader learns he's condescending and a snob with just a half a sentence. In uh, the novel The Queen's Gambit by Walter Tevis, it's a terrific novel, the chess player Sizemore runs a comb through his hair after he moves each piece. Move the knight, comb his hair. Move a pawn, comb his hair. With that one thing, the reader learns he's a warrior, he's fidgety, and he feels he's under pressure. And he probably doesn't fit in the regular world. We learn all that with a gesture. When we writers add one unusual vivid trait or quirk or odd clothing or weird dialogue or a mannerism for our character, it can make that character leap off the page for the reader. For the reader, it's memorable, maybe unforgettable, and often it creates a direct connection to the reader. Maybe 
maybe not that particular quirk, uh, combing our hair after each chess move, but because we all have quirks, and it shows the character in the story is a human, just like us. And often, readers will correctly infer a vast amount of information about that character's personality and attitude and history just from one little thing we the writer add. This is a strong technique used by the masters, and we can do it too. Well, here's my cat, Jack, jumping onto my desk. Come on, Jack, move out of the way. I have three pieces of equipment I use for these podcasts. My laptop, a microphone, and a pop filter. A pop filter is a metal circle that frames a gauzy fabric. You've seen them on videos of singers making a recording in a studio. It's positioned in front of the microphone, and it prevents the popping sound when the speaker says or sings words with a P or a B in them. Uh, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers without a pop filter would sound like a machine gun when recorded. These, these sounds, the explosive P or B, are called Plosives, a weird word, P-L-O-S-I-V-E-S. My cat Jack must think he's a pop filter as he likes to insert himself between my chin and the microphone, pushing aside the pop filter. Jack's furry enough to act as a pop filter, I suppose, but I must insist on using professional equipment, Jack, so I slide you over to the corner of my desk there you are, and continue with my professional equipment. I sometimes wonder about those thousands of years ago. Who let the first cat into the first house? How did that happen? But I digress. My new novel, Fagin and Miss Havisham, has been released and is available at Amazon. The novel takes place in London in the 1820s, and its characters are Charles Dickens's famous characters from many of his novels. Fagin and Bill Sykes from Oliver Twist, Miss Havisham from Great Expectations, Murdstone from David Copperfield, and many others. They are younger than in Dickens's novels, and I toss them together to see what happens. The publisher is Creative Texts, an independent publisher and a good one, and I'm delighted. I had huge fun researching and writing the novel. I tried to take readers back to London 200 years ago, and I hope you'll consider getting a print or ebook copy. You'll be able to see whether I can actually do the writing techniques we talk about in these episodes. The title again is Fagin and Miss Havisham. Thank you. I'd like to talk about how to write action scenes. There are some important techniques for writing about action in our stories. You've heard me say before that in almost all novels, in every genre, action is the most interesting element of the story. Watching a character do something is almost always more interesting than uh, descriptions of the settings or characters or 
conversation or hearing a character think or any other element. Readers like to watch a character move. This, this reminder is particularly important for writers of romance and literary novels and other uh, uh, genres often seen as more gentle uh, than thrillers. And, and these writers may not put much thought into action scenes. Action is visual, and the reader can see it in his or her mind. Most novels in all genres should have scenes of intense action, irrespective of the genre. Readers want something to watch. Here are some keys to writing an action scene. There are 10 of them and that I can think of, and there may be more, but these are the ones that come to me. First, use action in in important places in the plot. The action should have a significant consequence. Uh, we shouldn't write an action scene where a mom and her daughter rush helter-skelter toward the house, find the front door is locked, rush around to the back door, one of them slipping on the ice, tearing up the stairs and barging into the kitchen just to get out of the cold. We should have something at stake in an action scene. The action should be important to the plot, to the characters. Two, use more shorter sentences than usual. Short sentences have a punch and lend punch to an action scene. We don't want to use all short sentences, but more than usual when we're uh, writing an action scene. Action scenes should sound more like Hemingway than Faulkner. Uh, William Faulkner was awarded the title of, quote, longest sentence in literature by the Guinness Book of World Records in 1983 for his 1,288-word sentence in Absalon, Absalon. But we shouldn't use all short sentences in an action scene. Too many short sentences will hurt the rhythm of the writing and too many short sentences, one after another, are oddly tiring to read. But we should use more short sentences than normal when describing action. Short sentences are percussive and give action scenes a tense rhythm. Uh, three, number three, use more simple sentences than normal. Uh, a simple sentence consists of a noun and a verb. I brushed the dog is a simple sentence. Uh, what's a sentence that isn't a simple sentence? A complex sentence is, because its fur was matted, I brushed the dog. Uh, complex sentences combined a, combine a dependent clause, because its fur was matted, with a simple sentence, I brushed the dog. A compound sentence, combine, a compound sentence combines two simple sentences. The dog ran inside, and I brushed it. Uh, we writers don't need to remember this complex compound grammar stuff. It's, it's too dull to take up space in our brains. But we should remember, use many simple sentences, a noun and a verb, more than usual when writing action. Number four, use strong verbs. Uh, run, swing, jump, punch, drop, are good. And we should avoid 
using the to be verb form, such as he went, she was, they were, they aren't as strong. It should be I jumped instead of I was jumping. Here's an example of how to write it. He ran along the pier and jumped across the widening gap onto the boat's deck. He pulled the pistol from his belt and leveled it at the pilot house. Here's an example of how not to write the same thing. Notice the overuse of the to-be verb form. He was running along the pier and was jumping over the gap. He was pulling the pistol from his belt and then was leveling it at the pilot house. I'm exaggerating here as I can't imagine anyone using the to-be form one after another like I just did, but we should be aware that the to-be form isn't as strong as the active verb form. He ran is stronger than he was running. Number five, don't stop during the action at any great length to describe the settings or the characters or other than perhaps in a phrase. Uh, the setting and characters should already have been well described before the action begins. Readers want to see what's going to happen, not read a National Geographic description of the setting, however beautifully it's written. Uh, this is an example of what we don't want to do, which I just wrote. Goldsmith sprinted toward the fence, the dog growling right behind him, maybe catching up. One of his loafers flew off, but he kept running. He breathed in huge gulps, and his arms churned. If only he could reach the fence. The fence was covered in graffiti, some of it from the... <laughs> Some from from the city's most infamous vandals or artist, who signed his painting with the word quack. They always featured a duck, drawn in Robert Crumb cartoon style, usually browns and reds, and the duck always smoked a cigar and its eyes were leering. Behind the duck was a cityscape painted in grays and blues. Well, see what's happened? The action... A man being chased by a dog has, has crashed to a halt. If the graffiti on the fence is important, I don't know how it could be in, in my thinking about this scene, but it might be in, in the story, we should make sure to have somehow described it earlier, not during the action. Number six, avoid adverbs and adjectives. This is a solid rule for all our writing, and it's particularly true for action scenes. In most sentences during an action scene, have a subject and a verb without pasting on a lot of modifiers. A sentence with too many adverbs and adjectives can feel lardy, and that feeling should be avoided, especially in action scenes. The brown and black brindle dog hurriedly ran, ran after Jones is lardy. Lardy, is that a word encumbered by lard? The dog ran, out, ran after Jones is action. It's fast action, and it's fast to read. The dog ran after Jones. Uh, number seven, remember cause and effect. In our example of a dog chasing the man, we shouldn't forget after the chase is over to have the man's breathing, have him breathing hard and maybe having scraped his hand on the fence and maybe leaning over his hands on his knees trying to catch his breath. 
and the sweat running down his back. Uh, the old saying is that when a character throws a ball, the reader must learn where the ball landed. It's cause and effect, and we should remember it in our action scenes. Number eight, uh, do not resolve the action scene using something that hasn't been foreshadowed earlier in the story. We don't want to have our hero pull a pistol from a pocket, a pistol we've never seen before and had never been led to believe was there. Uh, these things need to have been foreshadowed. Uh, number nine, in the same vein, we shouldn't have characters suddenly show an ability that hasn't been seen or mentioned before. We shouldn't have Joe suddenly use karate if karate hasn't been mentioned earlier. And uh, we shouldn't have Lisa ride a horse exceptionally well unless she's been seen to do so earlier or, or her ability has been mentioned earlier. Uh, we shouldn't have one character punch another in the jaw and the other character easily shaking it off unless we have foreshadowed that he's tough. Number 10, have our character act in character. That is, act like she's, she's been acting earlier in the novel, at, at least mostly. If our character has had a low threshold for pain, we shouldn't suddenly make her impervious to pain. If our character has been stoic, we shouldn't suddenly make her a whiner. If our character has been kind, we shouldn't have him do something cruel during the action. In, in other words, our character should act in character. I said there were 10 things on this list. There are 11. Here's number 11. Usually avoid having two action scenes in a row. We should give the reader a breather. Two action scenes in a row loses the valuable tool of contrast. An action scene preceded by a romantic scene or followed by a romantic scene or some other scene other than action will make the action scene especially vivid for the reader. By contrast, yellow is yellower when placed next to blue and blue is bluer. Same with the tenor of scenes in our novel. These 10 techniques for action scenes sound like a lot, but most of them are common sense. Uh, an action scene, scene should present strong and clear action right in front of the reader. Here's the list one after the other without any explanation. One, use action in important places in the plot. Two, use more shorter sentences than usual. Three, use more simple sentences than normal. Four, use strong verbs. Five, do not stop during the action at any great length to describe setting or characters. Six, avoid adverbs and adjectives. Seven, remember cause and effect. Eight, do not resolve the action scene using something that hasn't been foreshadowed. Nine, in the same vein, don't have a character suddenly show an ability that hasn't been seen or mentioned before. 10. Have our character act in character. And 11. Usually avoid having two action scenes in a row. Action scenes are fun to write and fun to read and should appear in 
every novel. We have arrived at the end of this episode. I'm glad you were along for it. If you'd like to send me an email, my address is jimfairseattle at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jim Fair. Please keep tapping those keys.